Before we start, I just want to encourage you. So this week we're continuing our series, Sanctifying the Ordinary. And uh, we're looking at certain things in our lives that we, as we read 1 Corinthians 10.31, we, we hear that, that in all things, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, we do all things for the glory of God. And as we've looked at different topics that are perhaps seemingly everyday uh, topics, we're considering these everyday topics in a way that we might then consider how can we glorify God even in that, even in the ordinary. We, we want to see our king lifted up. And this morning we're looking at conflict. And so before I start, I actually want to just plug a couple of books that I found helpful in, in my own preparation and in my own life as I've considered conflict. So the first one is, um, for those that are married, a book by Paul Tripp called What Did You Expect? has been a really helpful book just in terms of uh, examining and weighing up what goes on in, in uh, marital conflict. And then another book that I found really helpful for conflict in all of life and this goes from the, the small interaction, relational conflict you have with uh, colleagues, uh, friends, all the way through to how do you actually approach even um, uh, a lawsuit or a conflict that seems really serious that it's at the point where you need mediation. Um, and that's a book by a guy called Ken Sandy um, called The Peacemaker. And that's an excellent book too. So uh, I'd encourage you, if you like to read further on topics, they're good books to grab they're available at the bookshop um, up the back, which you can have a look at at the end. We're going to read James 4. Ah. James 4, verse 1 through to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to, uh, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no, no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that we've already gathered as a corporate body and we've worshipped you. We've been able to adore you and you've graciously heard our prayers. You've graciously heard our, our, our crying out to you, our desire to, to make much of you, to enthrone you. Father, as we come before this, this passage of word, this section which you, in, in uh, your divine sovereignty, allowed James to write in a way that would be helpful for us this day. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, take your words, would you take your words and bring them to life, that they would be piercing to our hearts, that they would be effective in illuminating our eyes, that we might again and again and again worship you, God, on Most High. Amen. So again, we're looking at conflict. And if I'm honest, when we were looking at the Sanctifying the Ordinary series, and conflict was one of the topics, I think for me to examine conflict was something that I was keen to do because I think in the last couple of years I've found within my own heart um, a, a, a growing awareness of that, that I can actually get angry. I wouldn't have said I was an angry man. I wouldn't have said that I was someone that would easily get angry. Um, I, so I've been a high school teacher. And I wouldn't have said necessarily that, that as a high school teacher, I'm one of those teachers who just you know, blows their top and just starts yelling at kids. But about five years ago, I became a dad. And, um, and, and for me, it's... It's to my shame in the way that I interact with my kids it is a big part of where I find and see something horrible, something wretched in my own heart. I see anger arise as I interact, as conflict arises. So there's one situation where I can remember coming home from a, from a, a day at work, looking forward to a date night with Bianca, my wife, and I was so excited anticipating this time that we we're going to have together. And the babysitter was there, and we put, or I put the girls down to sleep and, and Bianca put Parker down to sleep. And we were then going through our final kind of run through with the babysitter. I can't remember who it was. It was probably Lucy. And um, we were sort of just going through our expectations, our, our anticipated um, time of uh, coming home. And uh, then I hear what I perceive to be completely fake crocodile tears and cries going on from the girls' bedroom and straight away my heart is stirred by that, not in a compassionate, oh, my poor baby girl, <laughs> but in a, she can be so selfish. This is like my chance to, to get out and have some fun with my wife, and, and here she is trying to rob me of, the, of an opportunity for joy. And, <laughs> and so I walk in, I walk into the, and I'm not even, I'm not compassionate at all. I walk in, and there is Talitha, and it's clear in my perception that it's fake crying, and I start to... <laughs> to allow her to know that I'm not happy. And it's not a, Talitha, I'm not happy. But what comes out of my mouth is straight away, it's a yell. Talitha, that's enough. Mummy and Daddy going out, whether you like it or not. And, and then she starts crying out for Mummy. And I notice that. <laughs> I'm not blind to the fact that all of a sudden her preference is Mummy. And uh, that doesn't go down well in my heart either, that my daughter then is, has a distinct preference for her mummy. 
and is crying out for her mummy. And that my yell was ineffective. I'm her daddy. She should listen to me, right? And so in that position, I am, am, am annoyed, slash really angry, um, that she is not listening to me. And so I start to come back at her again with a louder voice, uh, with, with an angrier tone, that ha- how upset I am. And she pleads and explains to me, and I just respond with anger. At which point my wife comes in and graciously is able to appease that situation and just somehow bring um, and restore uh, all order. And I walk away from that, and uh, that's it. We then go and have our date night. And I don't really ponder it again. Until the opportunity arises that then you can preach a sermon on conflict and read a, a, a section from James. And I realized that what was going on there wasn't necessarily a conflict between my daughter and, and I, her dad, but the real war, the real conflict, when we examine conflict, the real war is actually going on in my heart. As I come to, into and engage in conflict, the real war is inside me. So I think this is wonderfully relevant to us this morning as we consider sanctifying the ordinary conflict. Whether you are a parent, whether you're married or single, whether you have a job or you're unemployed, whether you're retired, the inevitable truth is that I can guarantee that conflict is going to be a part of your immediate future. I can guarantee that you will soon engage and be encountering conflict. So how do you bring glory to God in that? How do we prepare ourselves for conflict? What a privilege it is then this morning to stop, to slow down and allow Pastor James to address us. Two questions that I think James addresses for us. The first question is, why is there conflict? The first question I think James will address for us is to to ponder and consider why is there conflict? And the second question that I want us to consider as we walk through James 4 is, how therefore, how do I straighten out conflict? How do I straighten out conflict? So let's look firstly at James 4, verse 1 to 2. It's helpful if you have your Bible open. James 4, and I'm just going to read the first two verses as we consider the first question that is um, posed for us by James. The first question, why is there conflict? James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What causes conflict? Why is there conflict. As we consider this, I think it's really helpful to consider what James is doing here. James here 
uses the plural, what causes fights and quarrels. I think he's deliberately general. That the situation here isn't, isn't clear to us, the reader. I don't think it has to be because I think what James wants us to be aware of is it doesn't really matter what the outside situation is, what the circumstance is. We want to go behind that and get to the heart and what is the true cause. James actually begins this book in chapter 1 and he, and he actually says, uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And the beautiful thing about the language is, again, it's just open-ended. So the conflicts that I face might be different to the conflicts you face, and yet the cause of all conflict, well, James is about to reveal that. Again, before we open the curtain to what causes... Another thing I want us to just ponder before we really dive into the answer that James gives is the language that James uses. What causes fights? What causes quarrels? And it begins with this language where it really progresses from fights and quarrels. And then did you catch this explosive word war and murder and adultery? These emotive, huge words that James uses. I think that's significant because I think if you're anything like me, we like to minimise our conflict. We like to kind of just turn the volume down as if it wasn't really that significant and sweep it under the carpet. So I walk away from my interaction with my daughter and sweep it under the carpet and don't address it. That's fine. And in my mind, I might have even justified a little bit. I might have... Um, so here's what we do. If, if you're anything like me, and I, and I imagine that we are, are similar in, in many ways, we kind of live in a world where we apply the carnival mirror perspective. So when I look at carnival mirrors, there's the one where I can stand in front of it and it distorts the view of me. So I might look really wide or really tall. And as I look in the reflection of other people, it distorts the view of them as well. So the carnival mirror attitude, the carnival mirror view of conflict is that when I approach conflict, rather when I walk away from conflict and I view it all through the carnival mirror view, I look amazing. I look incredible. And there is every reason to, to assume as I walk away that that, that was clearly not, not caused by me. And I will not stop and examine my own life. But I'm very quick, rather, to perhaps dismiss it, minimise it, avoid it, run away and escape from it, run to something that might be pleasurable so I can feel better about it, that will then, in all of these things, really just help me to minimise it. But James will not let you do that, friends. Did you see that? Fights and quarrels become war. Fights and quarrels and conflict is murder and adultery. So as we ponder and consider this question, what is the actual cause, I want you to get how serious this is. That as we do this, as we examine our own hearts in conflict, this is serious. This is deep end. Are you ready for this kind of stuff? So look with me again. What causes conflicts? James says, in the second half of verse 1, Is it not this? Is it not this? That your passions, your passions, are at war within you. That your passions 
are at war within you. Within you. That the problem isn't Talitha, my daughter, that the problem isn't uh, Bianca, my wife, that the problem is not my colleague, that the problem that caused me to get angry cannot be dismissed by the fact that I had no sleep the night before, that the problem that I am, am angry in that moment cannot be because, well, that's just how my family was raised and we all just got angry and yelled at everyone every time. Stop. Pastor James wants us to stop. What is the cause of the conflict? Stop and examine that there is something going on in you. When you find yourself in conflict, we need to stop and examine our own hearts. I found it helpful to consider it like this. So here we have a sponge, and when I squeeze the sponge, not even squeezed yet, when I squeeze the sponge, it's under pressure, it's in a situation that's not nice, water comes out. Water is coming out. As I squeeze, so it's not squeezed now, but now I squeeze, water comes out of the sponge. So the question I have for you is, did water come out of that sponge because it was squeezed? Yeah or no? The water came out of that sponge because there was water in it. Water came out of the sponge because it was, there was water in it. If I had another sponge that had no water in it and the same situation, the same circumstance, the same pressure, the same heat is applied to it and no water comes out because there's no water in it. So does water come out because of the situation, because of the external factors or water comes out because there was water in the sponge? James wants us to stop and examine and not be so quick to shift the blame which we do so easily. Stop and examine your own heart. As you encounter conflict, as you get angry, as you react, perhaps you play a passive-aggressive game and don't show anger, but inside you're still seething. Perhaps you are offended, but again, you don't want to show it. You feel bad and you run to something that might cover up. You run to a refuge and maybe that's chocolate or maybe that's some pleasurable, thrilling experience like surfing. They're all just fruit of a sponge being squeezed and what's coming out is expressing what's going on in the heart. James says, stop. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war in your own heart? For Bianca and I, and I've got permission to share some of these, these situations. For Bianca and I, when we first moved to Sydney, um, I was really, really good at trying to help her see that she needed to change. And um, I was really quick, if you like, to help her and, and to apply James 4 to her. Um, and so when we first moved to Sydney after getting married, we were a newly married couple and I'd grown up in Sydney. And so I, I had a number of friends... And Bianca, at that time, had a couple of friends, but, but on the whole was still developing friendships. Um, and, and for a country girl, moving to the city, that can take some time. And being the loving husband that I was, I, I proceeded to just kick into gear and continue to surf. Whenever there was an opportunity, whenever there was a Saturday morning, I, Bianca might say, oh, can we go shopping together? And I'd be like, oh, I've already locked in to go for a surf with Matt. 
Uh, and for me, for me, that, that was something that I had to do. Someone had said to me once that it's really important for married couples to maintain a good balance of, of enjoying outside activities apart from each other. And so that became the thing that I clung to. And, uh, and so I was quick to help Bianca understand that. And when she was upset, when she was angry at me for doing it for every Saturday, every chance we had where we might have been able to hang out as a couple, I am surfing and she is sitting around not knowing anyone in a big city, we then would have discussions <laughs> or debates or we'd get angry at each other. And I was trying to help her so much to see that she just needed to change. And uh, Jane, uh, 1 John 1, 8 says, 1 John 1, 8 says that if you think, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I was so deceived, friends. I was convinced that I was in the right, that I actually uh, was doing the right thing in trying to help my wife instill this practice in our, life, in our marriage early. But man, I was so wrong. And the way that I then would get angry at her for trying to rob me again of something that I wanted to do, oh man, it was, it's shameful and disgusting. And, and, and the way that then I would actually go so far as to defend the inner lawyer, the inner lawyer that we all know, right, would come out and I would be so quick and able to justify myself and be so convinced, so self-righteous, as if I am the fourth member of the Trinity, that there is no way that I can be wrong in this situation. It, is, it has got to be Bianca. But James says, no, no, well, stop. What causes the conflict? Is it not that there is a passion that is at war within you? Stop, Mark. Stop. Examine your heart, Mark. Examine your heart. There's a really helpful quote by Paul Tripp on this. I think as he, as he expounds James 4, here are his comments. Our desire to set up our own kingdom is in direct conflict with the king who has come to rule in our hearts. This war beneath all others... Who will rule that tense situation at work? Your desire for a raise or God's glory? Will God rule that conversation with your child or your desire for peace and quiet? Will God rule your relationship with your father or your desire for vengeance for years of mistreatment? These skirmishes within your heart are battles in the most important war. What does all of this have to do with conflict? It points us to the cause. Think about it this way. If my heart is ruled by a certain desire, there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you are helping me get what I want, I will be happy with you. But if you stand in my way, I will be angry, frustrated, discouraged when I am with you. My problem is not you or the situation we are in together. My problem is that a legitimate desire has taken over my heart and is now in control. This desire has so much power that it is no longer legitimate. It has become an inordinate, sinful desire because it has grown to a position of authority over my heart. This authority belongs to God alone who sent his son to set up his kingdom there. 
what, what Paul Tripp helps us understand, what James is helping us understand is whatever conflict you find yourself in, as we stop and examine our hearts, we will probably find that within our hearts, we have pushed God off the throne and we've put in place of God, crowned on the throne, a desire. Now, that desire can even be a good desire, but a good desire that should never be on the throne where God and God alone belongs. We've pushed God off, pushed God off the throne and then placed something on the throne that should never be on the throne. And, and, and then all of a sudden, that thing that is on the throne, we are, if you like, so committed to defending that desire that we will stop at nothing, that we will defend that desire as if, if that desire has every right to be there. James says, stop, examine your heart. Who is on the throne in your heart? Is it God? Or have you put something else in the, in, in the place of God, on the throne of your heart where God ought to be? What are you serving in that moment where you explode in anger at your child? What are you serving in that moment where you get so bitter inside when, you're, when your boss says something you don't like and you walk away growing inside? What are you serving? What is the desire that is exploding inside? You feel like you can justify, you can defend that desire so powerfully. Why? What, what is on the throne of your heart? Many an afternoon for me, I would drive home from, from a long day of being a high school teacher I may have started coaching soccer in the morning and it might be a 7 o'clock start. And I'd be coaching uh, and doing my best to rally uh, tired 15-year-olds to run around an oval and kick a ball. And then I'd spend a day teaching in the classroom or on the oval and dealing with the interactions. More often than not, a year nine class is challenging me in different ways and, and challenging my authority as a teacher and addressing them. And then my recess might, and lunch might be full of, of discipline and following up or in academic conversations about how we can teach better in, in, in the classroom. Uh, and, and then after school, I'd be refing a soccer game or coaching on the sideline of a soccer game. And I might leave late. And I'm tired. And so I, I hop in the car and I would drive. I was working at the Northern Beaches at the time. And I would drive home. This is like an everyday almost experience. I would drive home just slowly putting onto the throne in my heart comfort. And I would just drive home just picturing this blissful moment that I arrive home as if the kids are just going to be so kind to me and excited that I'm home. And they will be so well behaved in the way they interact. And I'm just picturing that, that Bianca has just got this blissful home at home where everything is away, everything is in place, there's no mess or clutter, uh, and, and dinner hasn't been pushed back um, to some other scheduled time because of kids misbehaving. I'm just thinking everything will be perfect. I'll sit down and uh, everything will be brilliant. I'll be able to then maybe just kick back on the lounge and enjoy what I want to watch. Um, and everyone will be excited about watching what I want to watch. <laughs> and so on the throne as I drive home is comfort. On the throne as I approach home is comfort. It's really interesting uh, Paul Tripp then further goes on and, and uh, expounds what goes on when we drive home like that. So I'm just going to read a quote from Paul Tripp again. He says, The problem with desire is that in sinners it very quickly morphs into demands, I must. 
demand quickly morphs into need. I will. I now view things that I want as essential to life. Eventually, I will come to accept the logic of my neediness. I will find it painful to live without the thing I desire. I will think it is appropriate to do everything in my power to get it. It becomes my right. Expectation very quickly leads to disappointment. So I drive home expecting comfort. I drive home with a heart that has a throne, not with God on the throne. No, no, no. Comfort is ruling. Comfort is my king. And I drive home, I get out of the car and I walk in. And what awaits me is the bliss? No, not always. <laughs> what awaits me, there might be a straightaway, there is children who are just at each other. And there's a, there's a fire that I've got to put out there straight away. There's a nappy that needs to be changed. There's, there's um, a dinner that's not quite ready. In fact, something's gone wrong because the children have distracted Bianca as well. And so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm so hungry after a long day, but I can't get what I want. So I cut loose everywhere because I want comfort and I've just walked into a minefield and so I just let the kids have it. And then it's not just the kids' fault, to be honest. It's Bianca's fault. And so I let her have it because it shouldn't be that the kids are misbehaving right now and I'm hungry and I want dinner right now. Father and husband of the year, right? But that, that's the fruit of someone who, who, who opened the door and comfort didn't just become like a good desire. It's nothing wrong with desiring comfort, right? But what happened is comfort ruled. Comfort became something that I thought, I will have it. I, I need to have it. I've, I've earned it. I will be so disappointed if I don't have it. I, I don't think I can live without it. I've got to make sure that I will defend and fight for my comfort. And if I don't get it, I will serve comfort so that I will get it, let everyone know that they are disrupting my king right now. What rules, what causes, fights, quarrels, conflict? Is it not the passions that are within you that are at war? Is it not that you've put something on the throne of your heart that should never have been there? So we understand, I hope we understand, we've paused and pondered, we've stopped and examined our hearts. As we, as we walk away from conflict, as we engage and, and approach this week, let us understand what causes fights and quarrels. Is it not that there is a desire within you that has become a ruler, a king, which it should never be? How then do I straighten out my conflicts? The second question I want us to ponder is how then do I straighten out my conflicts? Firstly, is it that we simply go to a conflict resolution uh, method? As a PE teacher, that's something that we teach at school. Is that right? We just apply conflict resolution. Uh, we follow our steps. Is there some way of appeasement? Well, no. If we've rightly understood that the problem is within, we need to consider then how we address the problem within. See, it's kind of like the mechanic. Uh, if, if I'm driving along... And in my car, I notice that the, the gauge for the, the thermostat, if it's getting really hot, then I might take the car to the mechanic. If it's really hot, the, the needle is pointing to really hot. If I take it to the mechanic and the mechanic decides that, that they, they're just going to like crack open 
the, um, the dashboard and adjust the needle so it always points to the middle, then I'm probably not going back to that mechanic. Because this needle is supposed to be an indication of something that's going on within and underneath the hood. If we understood that there is a problem within our hearts, then the, the, the solution is not to run and try and adjust the situation, the circumstance, the environment where you're working, the, what's going on at home. No, no, the, the, the place to begin is to adjust your hearts. So, James, how do we do that? James, how do I adjust my heart? Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. As I walk away from conflict, as I approach this week, I need to be continually reminding and examining my heart and seeing who is on the throne. Humble myself before the Lord, the one who is the rightful ruler. I need to ask myself, what kingdom am I serving? In truth, what I need to do is I need to apply the gospel, friends. And the way that I apply the gospel as I examine and prepare myself for conflict is, that, is asking a series of questions. And the first question I think is helpful for you, to, for you to ask of yourself, for me to ask of myself, is what kingdom am I serving? Whose kingdom am I serving? God's or mine? Second question I think is really helpful and helpful in, that, in pondering as we humble ourselves before the Lord, is as we consider that God is God, then I want to ask the question of myself, do you agree with God's judgment of you at the cross? We read in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy But who are you to judge your neighbours? There is only one judge. As I consider how I am reacting, how my heart explodes, as, as I consider conflict, do you agree with God's judgment of you at the cross? Stop and consider that. Consider that daily. Position yourself to be able to consider daily this question. Do you agree with God's judgment of you at the cross. I want to pause and stop and consider this a little because for me this is powerful. As, we, as I was reading Luke, I've been spending a bit of time in Luke's Gospel, there's a bloke in Luke's Gospel called Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, a, a, a man who was committed murder, who stirred up riots. Barabbas was a man who actually was on his way to be killed. His punishment for the way he had lived was to die and be crucified. Now, you read in Luke 23 that, for whatever reason, Pilate decides to actually offer up a a, a situation where perhaps Barabbas might be let free in exchange for Jesus. Jesus, innocent, has done nothing wrong. He's not a murderer. And yet what happens is Barabbas, the one who has every right, the one who deserves the punishment, scandal of all scandals, is let go. And the one who has done nothing wrong then walks the walk and the path that the one who was guilty ought to have walked. So Barabbas is let go 
And then Jesus walks the walk that Barabbas should have walked and dies in the place where Barabbas would have died. Friends, you have more in common with Barabbas than you realise. I have more in common with Barabbas than I realise. And this is critical to conflict, to understand this. See, ponder with me for a second. Let's say, imagine if your life was, even, even just a week, was on DVD, caught on DVD. Now, it's freaky, it's big brotherish, weird, but just imagine if somehow all of your life, and even just the last week, was placed on a DVD, and then imagine, you've been great at imagining today, that this is not a book, it's a DVD. So imagine if your week, your thoughts with incredible technology, I can actually then put them and play them out loud in every situation as well, what you're thinking is caught on DVD. So let's say that this is your life on DVD, at least just for the last week. If you're anything like me, you're not going to be in a rush to have that played on that screen. Your thoughts, your actions, I don't want that to be public, let alone my whole life. And if I had to give it a rating... If I'm honest, I don't, I, I'm not, is there anything worse than R18 Plus? Is there like a... My, my rating would be atrocious. God is a holy God, friends. God is a, an almighty God. If we're talking DVDs, we're talking about G-rated. Is it is PG? Maybe it's PG. Whatever the best rating is, God says that is all that can be in His presence. He's not going to put up with your DVD. Now, let's say if the truth is that you're going to sit down, you're going to watch your DVD of your life every minute with God, knowing that the Holy God cannot stand anything less than G-rated. And here you have your life. It's clear that it's your life, your thoughts, your actions. It is you in, in and on the DVD in every moment. And you have that in your hands and you have to sit down with a holy, awesome God. And he's going to watch that DVD and judge your life accordingly, knowing, and you know, that he will not settle for anything less than G-rated. Here's the scandal, Barabbas. Mark. Here's the scandal. That there is one who lived a perfect G-rated life. And he comes up, and he gives you his G-rated life. You swap and you take his G-rated life, and you sit down and you watch, and it's clear to God that it is not your life. It is perfect. But because you have that life in your possession, Christ, who is your life, you are set free from any judgment that you would have faced. But what about the one you swapped with? The one who was completely innocent, the one who lived the perfect life, takes your life, your R-rated DVD, And he sits down with a holy God. And he takes your life and all that your life deserves and all that your your circumstances, your thoughts, everywhere that you've fallen short of the righteous holy God, everywhere that you've pushed God off the throne and placed something else, yourself, on the throne, you've competed for supremacy with the holy God, God now judges him. That everything you did wrong, he was punished for. And God gives him every punishment that you should have had. He receives it for you, for me. We relate to Barabbas so much more than we realise. 
And so as you walk into conflict, as you approach conflict this week, do you agree? Do you agree with the judgment that God judges you of you on the cross? That you deserve that? Do you see that? Do you see the depth of your depravity and the wretch that you are? Paul saw it and saw it, said that of himself that he was the worst of all sinners. Do you see that? Uh, a, a man called Alfred Poirier, I think that's how you pronounce it, Alfred Poirier, is helpful on this. And, and he said, in response to, this, to my sin, the cross has criticized and judged me more intensely deeply, pervasively, and truly than anyone else ever could. This knowledge permits us to say to all other criticism of us, this is just a fraction of it. In view of the great judge, when criticism is is brought to me, when things aren't the way that I would like them to be, remember the cross. Remember the judgment. This is just a fraction. You might, you might not even be right, but you know what? You remind me of, you remind me of what is right. <laughs> that I really am a wretch. That Christ, the Holy Lamb of God, died, was condemned in my place for me. Do not minimize that. Do you agree with that? Well, the second question, that, or the, sorry, the third question I think is helpful as we, as we consider conflict is actually a question again following on from that. Do you agree then that God, the judge, has saved you? There is only one judge who can both save and destroy. God saves you in the cross. Do you agree with that? Psalm 103 verse 12 says that he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. When Christ died for me, when Christ died for you and we receive Christ by faith that in his death, my judgment is dealt with, I am justified. Just as if I'd never sinned in God's sight, that I can stand before the holy, awesome God, knowing that my sin is removed from me in his sight, as far as the east is from the west. What an awesome God we serve, that we can be completely forgiven. And this is a wonderful truth as we consider conflict, as we consider criticism, as we consider how we interact with people that we don't get along with. Again, Alfred Poirier says, If you truly take this to heart, the whole world can stand against you, denounce you or criticize you, and you will be able to reply, If God has justified me, who can condemn me? If God justifies me, accepts me, and will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure and fear criticism? Christ took my sins, and I receive his spirit. Christ takes my condemnation, and I receive his righteousness. Nothing can be said against me that will affect my standing before that true judge, the one judge who can save. Nothing can be said that will change that. Now, I can receive criticism. There might be something right in it, and it's good for me to hear that and think about how I can change. But will I be so affected and offended by that? No, because nothing will affect ultimately how I stand before my righteous Heavenly Father. 
I've been saved. I've been justified. It's, um, I used to work with a whole bunch of Kiwis with New Zealanders, and uh, there are some in the room right now. So, if I, so, I, uh, <laughs> the Thompsons. But um, at at school, some of the Kiwis, there was a bit of banter between the, the Australians and the New Zealanders, and uh, we would go back and forth, paint each other out about our um, all in good humour and good jest about our accents, um, but. But whatever happened, whenever we tried to have a dig at them, perhaps about um, the number of sheep on their island or, or whatever, they always had something that they could say that all of a sudden, argument ended. They would just say the, the one powerful word, rugby. And it was ended. Everything was in its place. You might find yourself in a conflict... And there, there can be some truth even in that, in the criticism that is brought forward. But you can always say that one powerful line that even if it's true, nothing can separate me from my, my awesome heavenly God. Even if it's true, God has saved me. Whatever the situation that you find yourself in, as you approach conflict, I want us to stop and ponder What's going on in my heart? Who is on the throne? Whose kingdom am I serving? Do I agree with God's judgment of me at the cross? And do I agree that, that God the judge has saved me completely? The gospel, the wonderful gospel applied to the, com- the conflict situation that you find yourself in is powerful to adjust your heart that you can examine your heart and see who is on the throne, put God back on the throne, receive criticism in light of the fact that you have been completely criticised in the cross, but you have been completely forgiven in the cross. Apply the gospel to your conflicts, friends. So I encourage you to do whatever you can to position yourself to do that. As you go into this week, whatever it is for you that is positioning yourself to, to apply the gospel. Maybe it's singing to yourself. Maybe it's having worship music on. Maybe it's making sure you maintain a regular quiet time. Maybe it's making sure you're at church. Maybe it's making sure that you're at life group and surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters who will help you understand who is on the throne. But whatever you do, you do need help. You need God's help. And there are situations where you need others. You need their insight into your own heart. You need their help, their wisdom to help you understand who is on the throne in certain situations. Whatever you do, apply the gospel. For me, I found it really helpful at times as I'm driving home and I've placed on the throne comfort and I'm aware of my tendency, my desire, my proneness to want to enjoy comfort. And I'm driving home aware that 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 right now, perhaps conflict is inevitable as I have put on to the throne of my heart conflict, uh, comfort. And in that moment, for me, I find it really helpful to recall the gospel in songs. For me, that I might crown in my heart, not comfort, but I might crown instead the lamb on the throne. 
Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. And awake my soul and sing of him who died for me. And hail him, not comfort, hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Let me pray that that would be our experience this week. Lord, I thank you that you have addressed us this morning. And as we examine our hearts, at times we see that we've displaced you from the throne. You, the rightful king. And yet, Lord, and yet, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not give us what our hearts deserve. You do not give us what a wretched sinner deserves. And yet your son was given that for me, was condemned for me. Thank you that you have given me a saviour. That I might know completely what it is to be forgiven. That even as I've reacted in conflict, even as I've expressed anger and my heart has overflowed, exposing the idols of my heart, you forgive me and you save me. So we cry out to you, Lord. We humble ourselves to you, Lord, and ask that you would help us to enthrone you, to crown you, that you would wear the crown of our hearts, that our desires would be for your will, not ours. Would you grant us much grace as we experience and express this this week? Amen.